Hi, my name is Stevie Ray Kazi. And I'm Gretchen SB. And you're listening to Exceptionally Average Authors Explain It All. Where two exceptionally average authors talk about stuff. You add salt to it? That's the yeah, that's I have not researched this. This is the thing this is the thing I was told would change it and I don't know enough about chemistry to say one way or the other. That's wild. Right? I'm gonna I, I will look it up, but also I won't do it because don't reheat your coffee gross. Just drink it when it's hot. <laughs> and then if Sometimes it's not hot, I... pour it out and get another one because you deserve it. <laughs> you, deserve, you deserve for your coffee to be hot if it was going to be hot you deserve for it to stay cold if it was going to be too cold life is too short for bad coffee and this is a hill i will die on i do on occasion reheat my coffee if i don't drink it fast enough but since i only make to the four to six line of coffee i usually finish it before mine has a two hour timer then it shuts itself off so i usually finish it by the two and a half hour mark by the time it starts to cool there's nothing consistent about my life that says that that would work (laughs) (laughs) and and, and evidence of this is the fact that i had two to-go cups today full of coffee that was and both of them were still warm because i had made two cups of the whole like four to six thing i'd made the first one i'd set it down I thought I drank it already. I couldn't find it. Oh, no. I made another one, and then I found the first one. I was like, wait a minute. Did I just make one? And I didn't realize I'd made two. That's how my life is going. So I was like, hey, teenager. I'm like, which one tastes better? And then I gave the other one to the teen. I really made I really made an entire pot of coffee in halves, back to back, because I forgot about the That's first fantastic. one. That's fantastic. Yeah, and they That's were both fantastic. still hot at the end. <laughs> there is definitely something to the stereotype that people in Western Washington have a, a bit of a low key obsession with coffee it is very very true my husband was a partner at starbucks so long that he got a trophy for it because it's 10 years <laughs> they give you a trophy which i mean 10 years of of job staying with the same job to support your family you should get a freaking trophy mine right. would look like you know probably a butt because of how many i've had to wipe in 14 years but <laughs> <laughs> why not I've been to a coffee museum. Did you know that? I did not know that was a thing, but I'm not surprised. This is how my husband thought he would woo me as he took me here on a date. You know, like that's adorable. Coffee bean is really just the seed of a cherry. Yeah. And sustainability and roasting. And it was it was neat. But it's just like that is not something I ever thought in my life when I like thought about what it would be like to be a grown up. That so much of my time would be spent on magic beans. I think magic beans are kind of, yeah, it's a good way to describe it. Yeah, no, it's magic beans. I make it into a potion. Let's go. It gives me energy. <laughs> words come out. Some of them are good. Yeah. Some of them are fighting words. All of them are high energy, though, because of the beans. I have a shirt somewhere that says, writer turns coffee into books. I have a new shirt coming I'm so excited for. It has books on it and it says get lit. Um, So other than getting a get lit shirt, what have you been up to? (laughs) Um, You know, just trying to organize my life. I have a new office. Pretty things are going in it. Some of it's for productivity. I'm not sure how it's all going to marry, but it's an arranged marriage. We'll see how it goes. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to get the productivity and the creativity feels a little like it industrial steampunk inside my head but what it looks like is a 12 year old's bedroom i'm okay with industrial steampunk that's a nice idea right like just the idea of things that don't go together going together like in my head i'm like yes it's cool like this and in 
in everyone else's head, my four-year-old asks me, well, where do you sleep now? Because it looks like a kid's bedroom. <laughs> it's got all the magic. I've got my my walking beam, my like balance beam gymnastic thing that my husband made me, and my spinning wheel, a bunch of art. I, ha- I have a figure of Gandalf. He sits by my writing and shall not pass this scene without appropriately finishing it. But yeah, no, just trying to hold on to my last shreds of sanity. How are you? I'm okay. I, I'm glad that you finally have an office. I work in our den a lot, and my poor husband, he doesn't set foot in the... There's a lot of crap in our den. I'm just going to preface that. But he doesn't come into the den and use the desk that often, mainly because he has no reason to. But he's he's like, it's very much your workspace, and I think he finds it a little overwhelming, the sheer amount of post-it notes I have on the wall, because it's currently... It's yeah. pretty covered, minus the ones that have fallen off. Like, there is... I think maybe one square foot of space between six feet off the ground and about a foot above the desk. The rest of it is pretty much covered. There's maybe, maybe two square feet. And then there's just a ton of bookcases with books. And then there's pop figurines. And for the last two holidays, like Christmas and my birthday, my husband has been buying me Stay Puffed Marshmallow Men (laughs) figurines. Because Ghostbusters is like my favorite. <laughs> I know the whole thing by heart. So I have a, a pop figurine giant like 10 inch marshmallow man that I was going to take to work. But both my husband and I, who is supposedly really good with spatial reasoning, underestimated how big 10 inches were. <laughs> so it would take up too much of my <laughs> desk at work. So now he just sits in his box and smiles at me <laughs> in the tent. But I do I do find that even surrounded by all of the figurines staring at me, the Funko Pop figurines, uh, having the desk makes me much more productive than I was trying to write on the bed and the couch and the kitchen table. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. The kitchen table, especially with kids or having my stuff shuffled. Mm hmm. It was causing some major problem. I cannot believe that I finished any books ever. Yeah. Uh, and I have photos of like toddlers standing on my shoulders while I'm writing. So like, <laughs> it's like a battle zone. And I'm so glad to have my own space. It's making me way happy, way productive. I have an inventory section. I have like a shipping section. I was able to send out books that got ordered from the school that I spoke at um, over Zoom a couple mm-hmm. weeks ago. And it's slowly, it's slowly falling into place. I have a laundry basket of, of books that need to go on a shelf that doesn't exist yet. <laughs> My husband's building me one. Or we'll, or we're building one together. I'm not sure how it's going to work, but it's going to happen. Uh, but first, he's finishing my Mother's Day present. Um, Mother's Day was last month, guys. It's after Father's Day right now. Uh, he's <laughs> I'm going to stay. Wait, what? Yeah. Well, I made the mistake of I wanted a puzzle of this old style typewriter. Mm-hmm. My family likes making puzzles together. That's not my thing, but they like it. So I was like, yay, an activity they can do together. I bought it from the local bookstore and I was like, just put it on something, glue it to something so I can put it on my wall. Very low expectations. It was a disaster of a puzzle. It was the worst, but like, oh, my family (laughs) loves puzzles now, hates puzzles. It was the monopoly of puzzles. It was so hard to finish. And I'm so proud of that. And it's beautiful. It's everything I wanted. And I feel so bad that they had to suffer through putting this thing together. It took like six weeks. 
it's fantastic. And my husband on top of that was like, I'm going to get some old reclaimed wood and I'm going to build this really cool. And he did. He put it together. There's like plexiglass involved. He, he showed me the steps. It's going to be beautiful. It's not done yet. But he just kept making it harder and harder, kind of like how you do your list of 70 things. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. And when it's done, some of that reclaimed wood is going on the bookshelf. So the bookshelf will match. Oh. Thing that he did for me. Yeah. So, so the office is opening up a lot of really cool possibilities for my husband to participate in his hobbies and for like our relationship to be cool. Like he's building me furniture. That is one of my like old lady married goals since I was. That is amazing. Yeah. I'm living the dream. It just looks like an absurdist dream, but that's okay. I like it. That's actually a perfect segue into our new set topic topic of sets of episodes because you are legit world building your office i am Ah! world building my office it looks as scattered and chaotic as my books do (laughs) accurate we decided that we were going to go through the steps with you guys of what it takes as as an average you know, exceptionally average indie author of putting together a book. And we wanted to start with the beginning of a book process, which is coming up with the idea, how you get the ideas and how you go from there. And how you go from there is the world building because you have to build the world that your books take place in, especially when you're like Stevie and I and predominantly write in the fantasy genre spectrum. World building is incredibly important. So we wanted to discuss that with you guys. Then we're going to be moving through, you know, the writing process and all that. But we knew we had to dedicate a section just to that initial part of the process, that initial spark, because it is so much more important than we sometimes give it credit for. It's like the PSATs. It could have no effect on the book whatsoever, but If you don't take the PSAT before the SAT, you don't necessarily know what you're in for. So it's it's not an ideal metaphor. But I didn't take either of those tests, Scratchin. (laughs) Well, then it doesn't matter. (laughs) But I'm happy with my metaphor, Stevie. (laughs) Or simile, because is it a simile or or is it a metaphor? Either of them, and you're a pantser. Well, even if you're a pantser, world building is still important. True story. Because you need to know the world that you're exploring in. So tell me, Stevie. From the beginning of your process, what does the ideas, like how do you come up with, because you work in, you're currently working in retellings. How did you decide retellings? What did you, how did you get to the point you're at? And how did you build that world around that initial idea? I don't have a set way that I'm like, okay, today is world building and I'm going to look at this. I'm still developing how to do that in a way that works for my brain. Because I'm naturally chaos, like a word bank in chaos <laughs> every day. So usually ideas come to me while I'm doing something else. The idea of fairy tale retellings or retellings in general, I want to say that it came to me as I grew and like understood categories and business and blah, blah, blah. But really what it, I think happened is I, I'm somewhere in the realm of that new genre of myth punk 
naturally anyway because I just want to take all of the mythologies and put them in a blender. But right, it's so fun, so mm-hmm. fun, and I didn't even realize I was doing it in my first series. But for the fairy tale retellings, I love I love taking them in. When I was trying to hone in, you know, I love to read. I read across genres. I'm a well reader. I am not a good indicator of what my reader is. So who is my reader? What do they like? And what do they like that I like enough to want to go after it? And some of my favorite stories growing up were like Ella Enchanted. Some of my favorite movies that Drew Barrymore did ever after. The Cinderella retelling. Uh, oh, I love that movie. Oh, right. Uh, when I the word mother coming off her the count the count was my mother like uh, stuck in my head forever. Okay, someone who hears things instead of seeing things in their head when we imagine stuff. So I, I felt myself really drawn to that. Once upon a time, I loved that series for the first few seasons. Me too. <laughs> and. I also love villains. I love Maleficent. Maleficent is one of my favorites. Medusa is one of my favorites. I wanted to learn how to spin, and I wanted an excuse to buy a spinning wheel. (laughs) (laughs) I legit also want to learn how to spin. (laughs) I I will show you. It's super fun. I didn't want to do Sleeping Beauty yet, even though Maleficent is one of my favorites, because a lot of that was coming out already, and actually Jessica was working on one. And I'm like, well, I don't want to... I'm not jumping all the way on the bandwagon, even though that would have been a great time business-wise for carryover because readers are hungry. I want to focus on something else. So I figured Rumpelstiltskin. And I started doing my research on, like, where did the original tale come from and what were the arguments for and against it academically? Like, what would you learn about it in an English class? Because my dad was an English teacher, so that's always where I go. If I'm nine sitting in his class, what is he saying about the history of this story? So I started looking at those and there was an argument about what the moral of the fairy tale is. Because again, I love morals. I love lessons. I love drawing parallels. Um, I work in young adult because I love the science of story psychology. The way it changes developing minds is fascinating and terrifying and a power trip all at once. Here for it. And the argument um, for morality in in fairy tales is that there's always a moral of some sort. But what is it? Because... Some of these fairy tales are messed up and don't make sense. So I found the argument that I liked and that I agreed with, and I ran with it. And I went, if it was this way, why would it be that way? So that's how it started. Okay. Long answer. Look, I'm getting less succinct as we go. (laughs) I'm rubbing off on you. (laughs) So that's how I did. That's how I did that part of it. How about you? How do you get started? It has changed so drastically. It's become more streamlined. Over the years, my first three books, which was the the first one I ever finished, was Berman's Wolves. But the first one that I started writing that I've published was Holiton Homicide, and, and then came Lady of the Dead. So I published them in some weird reverse order of how they were created. Lady of the Dead started with the, it's one of the opening lines of the, the book. It just came to me when I was writing something else. I don't remember what it was, whether it was Berman's Wolves or Holiton or some of the other random hundreds of books that I've thought up over the years. But it was the the night world stole me from reality. That line for people who have read that book. And if you haven't, that's a line in the book that just came to me. And I was like, well, that's an interesting statement. And I wrote it in a Word document and I saved it. And it just sat there for years. And then one day it was itching at me like that line which is, this was how my mind used to work when I wrote before I published. It would itch at me, and then I would open it, and then start working on it. Then I'd hit a wall, 
then I'd stop working on it for months, years, whatever, and then come back to it. Maybe reread it, maybe tweak it, maybe add some, that process. So I had a bunch of stuff in progress. And then one day I opened the Night World document and it was maybe a paragraph. And I went, oh, I know where this goes. And I just wrote. And I wrote the entire opening sequence before the male character pops into the scene and i wrote the whole thing and i was like wow i thought this was a throwaway line i'd have to add and it became a book and i think it's more than a book and i could feel the tendrils of a spider web of a series forming and as i wrote that book and the series developed there were a bunch of other standalone books that i had uh pulled in from other places that i i that i had on my computer there were three or four of them and they slid into openings in this series and i was like oh these guys could live in this world these guys definitely live in this world this story would fit in this world and it just all came into place and i was like oh wow okay this is going to be a thing and so that was how a lot of my series came into be berman's wolves was a dream that i had was one scene that was the starting scene and ended up not being the starting scene. It ends up being in like chapter three or four by the time I finished. Berman's Wolves, I wrote out of order, which I very rarely do. That one, that was odd in general for me. And then Holliton started with a joke that I made with a friend of mine about him being a cop. And then I wrote the first uh, Holliton being at the first crime scene. And I didn't even write it. I was saying it out loud to a friend of mine. And then the thought fizzled out like I do. And I stopped. And he went, then what? Because I was talking to him on the phone. And I go, what? He goes, then what? You have my interest peaked. And I'm like, I don't know. I was just coming up with that on the fly. And he, and he goes, that's very frustrating. I want to know what happens next. So I ended up writing that down. And it ended up expanding and becoming a story. And that was how a lot of my ideas happened for a long time. And now when I write something, it's because I have an idea. My subconscious and I have this dance that we perform and there will be a thought. I'll be doing something and a a stray thought will whiz by. It's just some random thing or I'll be doing something or someone will say something and my imagination just sparks like a match and goes, hey, what if this? And that's it. It's just one what if statement. And I can either tug down the down the string like it'll be a match attached to a string. And I go down that string to see where it goes. And sometimes it doesn't go anywhere yet. And then it usually gets followed up with about half the time with a dream that I'll then have later about that idea. And I know that that is my creative or subconscious mind, however you want to phrase it, communicating with me. It's my my way of figuring out or solving the problem of, hey, what if this? And if I wake up and I remember the dream and it was interesting enough, I then will write it down somewhere, either in a notebook, because I have a notebook collection that grows exponentially and, and or a word document or it'll get added to an existing series. And that's how my ideas form with new series is that that's my long-winded answer of how my ideas form. And then the world building happens after that. It's, I, I liken it to, I'm standing in the middle of a spider web. There's no spider because I hate spiders, but there are just lines tugging off Fred, into the distance. No what? Is there also no doubt? Because it's spider webs, but there's no spider. <laughs> I wish. That was Find the first CD I ever I'm bought. I'm in a 12 year old's bedroom office, okay? Whatever, that was the first CD I bought, so it's fine. You're walking in a spider web. Yeah, you're, you're just, I, I stand there and there's just all of these ropes coming out. And each of those ropes is a different series that then branches off 
into the different directions those series could go. And if I pull myself down one of those strings, the farther I go, the more complete of an idea it is and the stronger the rope gets. Mm-hmm. Because I am a very mentally visual person. And so I'll just, I'll go down and I'll tug down that line. And it's almost like there are facts about that world along that string. Kind of like how you, and you're playing a video game and you keep going and then you pick up this thing off the ground that ends up being useful. It's kind of like that. I'll be walking Here's along and I'll be like, out there, take this. Yeah, exactly. That's a so it'll be. Point for my pantser. Hello. <laughs> for you, Gretchen. I swear to you, you are secretly a plotter. You just don't know how to how it works for your brain yet. Maybe. I, but I don't. You're into I don't. This podcast. When you discover it, we're gonna have some funfetti cake. Yes, yeah, some funfetti cake milk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're gonna celebrate. It's gonna be a thing. But yeah, that's that's how my brain works for world building. Is it's just this string of, well, if that happens, this has to happen. Well, if this happens, this has to happen. And I just keep walking down that path or that string. Choices and consequences. Yeah. Well, if this has to happen, this has to happen. And then off in the distance, sometimes I'll see something and I'll know that it's out there. But I don't know how I get to that point. I just know I will eventually reach that point. Mm -hmm. And that's that's how my world's build now and I haven't gotten to do a lot of real world building in several years because I'm working off the same series that I've always worked off so all I've been doing is the initial world building for series that I might do in five to six years fun yeah that sounds like quite the process it sounds more complicated than it is I just I think I'm not describing it well Well, I think it boils down to something that actually I've caught myself chasing this same sequence over and over as well many many books are born from the question what if and that's the that's the birth of the idea i think the world building comes when you move from what if or you start to like cycle in but why yeah and the but why is when your world starts the what if is like what if this was a thing and now we have a concept and then the why is just why would a person act this way because of that because of this mm-hmm. um and it works for worlds too yeah yeah because it I, I think the what if is like what what happens and the why is the structure around it so that yeah makes sense? it's showing your work showing why your why it would have why your work mattered like well, what if this happened? Mm-hmm. And then you have a response to that. You have to back it up. Yeah, it's a lot like showing your work. You would go that way. After <laughs> I'm sorry. Why'd you, throw, why'd you throw a math in there? I have been working for universities for more than 10 years now. It's it's in my system. It just, it is what it is. Oh, it hurts me because it's relatable. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> but the beauty of world building is, and you always have to be careful when you're world building because sometimes you'll over world build, world build, and then you'll, you'll go off on tangents. And while not everything you do at the world building stage is going to affect your final books, you know that, that law or that rule or that system is in place in your world even if the characters never come across it you know that if someday your character wanders into that field that that field is home to a certain type of fairy you know that and it it always pays to have that information in case 
that happens. But you could go the entire series and no one ever goes to that dang field. It might not even be referenced, but you have that information. And that's where world building is so much fun because you're doing all of this creation and it's just pure inspiration. But you always have to be careful because you could overdo it. Yeah, because- honing honing in. Like, not that overdoing it is going to hurt anything other than, you know, your time, your deadline, yeah. your your bottom line. Because the Silmarillion worked great for Tolkien, but it's not going to work for all of us. Um, so how do you hone in? How do you mm-hmm. make sure that you're not overdeveloping or developing something that maybe you have an attachment to but isn't really necessary? Oh, it's been so long since I've had to create new worlds I think that a good example is the latest Night World book that I did last year. It takes place in a traveling carnival. I had to go into the details mentally about what the traveling carnival's route was. I had to know what months they went. The book takes place over the course of a year. So I had to keep track of where they were in each month to make sure everything lined up perfectly. I had to know where the main character, the other main character, the hero, if you will, where the male counterpart would be. Every detail about the carnival. And I had to do some research on carnivals. Like I watched a couple of, of specials on how old school carnivals ran and... I had to know the rules for this particular society, and I had to know how those individual groups of Nightworlders worked together for the carnival. And I had to know all of that information before I started. And I know that there were, I had to go into greater detail than I needed because I don't know where my books will end up. So I had to have more information. And what I ended up doing, which was a bit of a, a challenge, was that I did more research on the carnival than I did the villain and where the villain of that book came from. So I ended up having to scramble while I was writing because I, I world overworld built one section of the story and didn't concentrate on this other one and then didn't realize how important that was going to be. (laughs) So I had to like stop and backtrack and, and refigure it out. And I managed it and it ended up being a whole other plot point that's going to come up later in the series. I was just like, how is the thing that I underworld built end up being more important than what I spent all my time on? But I think that's that's just the nature of pantsing your books. Yep, it kind of is. <laughs> what about you? What? How do you stop yourself from overindulging in the glory of world building well i think that part of part of my like safety net is that i don't visualize things in my head the same way other people do so it's not necessarily as satisfying for me to sit there and imagine it what's exciting for me is the things that like actually move the story forward because i can't see the rest of it anyway in my head and the way that i do that is what are my what are my special interests? What do I want to know about it that is also going to be applicable, you know, enough that other people want to do it? So I start with magic because I write fantasy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, what are its limits? Because I don't want it to be a cheap plot device. What are its yeah. consequences? Because that's how I'm going to up the ante and, you know, at the midpoint, at the climax of Act 2, whatever, is I'm going to play with the limits and consequences of magic. From there, like, on a grander scale, we've got an entire kingdom. We've got neighboring kingdoms. How are they working with each other? And that, so I'm about to talk about systems. So magic is a type of system. Politics is a type of system. Any social group is a type of system. How do those things interact with each other in my world? How do they interact with each other in my world in a way that's going to back my character into a corner that I can write them out of 
that's important. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, Don't and, paint and yourself in a corner. Mostly what that comes down to is who has the power? How is the power being misused? Who's being oppressed by the people who are misusing the power? And then once all of those things are in place, enough for me to start to warm up the characters, because I will, you know, get to know them a little bit more because you get to know more about someone's world when you go, oh man, you're this way. What made you that way? <sighs> the system you live in, just like all the rest of us. So <laughs> then I get really excited. <laughs> then I get really excited and we we run with it. And then I go, okay, how would the law of unintended consequence work? Then I start bringing in psychology and I'm excited. Um, but it also, like it feeds into character development, which feeds back into systems. And it's kind of like the snake that's eating itself. Mm. Again, that comes up a lot in my life. So it keeps it contained and really fleshed out and really powerful and is easy to get lost in, I think, in the same way that it is easy to get lost in what kind of ale do they brew? Like, what yeah. does his socks look like? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What do you guys who see things in your head think about in your worlds? I don't know. And then it, and then again, it goes back into research and um, the things that I can't see in my head. What does the castle look like? What kind of, what would make sense to be like, there's a stained glass scene, stained mm -hmm. glass windows in the scene and what, like, what would that look like historically since we're pulling from, you know, I fairy tale retellings, I get to pull a little bit from real world and then turn it into something unrecognizable. Yeah. And that usually keeps me pretty on task because it's the same kind of thing over and over. It's not a whole lot of newness. Humans have certain patterns. The thing that slows me down is feelings. It's fine. <laughs> you bring up a really good point about buildings mm -hmm. that was ma making notes the the buildings i think is the hardest part for all of us whether you can see images in your head or not because i will constantly when i'm working on a series be like okay how did i say that this room was right. because i've after a while you've done so many rooms in a series that's longer than one or two books that you're like, okay, what did this apartment look like? What did the office look like again? What color yeah. were the shoes? It's, right. That's why that plotting software will come in handy when I finish putting all the information in. Yeah, I think that that's, that's a big part of world building too, is not only building the world out, but remembering <laughs> what the world is, like how the campgrounds looked, which was a big one in my fourth book. I made that mistake and had to rewrite a scene because I was like, oh, this is not where the parking lot is. Continuity, it's, yeah. Mm-hmm. Continuity in your world building is a huge one, and that's something readers ding you on. If you read the book and something changes throughout, or if they're reading your book and something changes, they're going to catch it. Whether you do or not, they will catch it, and they will tell you about it. Well, and some things you can get away with that with, and some things you can't, depending yeah. on your genre. It can be really genre-specific. Like, I think we've talked before on how when I started looking at Save the Cat, I started appreciating other genres more, <laughs> and the... Example I used was Die Hard. I love Die Hard. Right? Okay, so action movie, it's not going to give you on screen a whole bunch of the background of him and his wife. Mm -hmm. For that genre, that part of the plot happens in a different way. And they do a really nice job of setting it up because mm -hmm. that part's not the point of the story. Yeah. But that type of relational world building would not work in romance. What do they you want it the other way. They want to see him and her more than the oh. action. And so, yeah, so world building, I think, changes a lot depending on what genre you write in, too. Mm -hmm. But I do think you're right. Building, buildings, fight scenes, and romance scenes, I think, are the three yeah. artists to get down accurately. 
Yeah. From, from what, like, that's the feedback I get from a lot of the other writers I talk to. Mm-hmm. When they talk about continuity errors. I think that's, that's enough on world building today. We are going to be talking about world building and how to start a book for the next three episodes. So what is your recommendation for our lovely listeners this episode, Stevie? Okay, my recommendation since we're talking about world building is going to be The Plot Dot by Derek Murphy. Uh, it's really visually based because you, you draw a lot of stuff. It's a lot of thought exercise for building your characters, building your world without mm. the pressure of having it have to be words because sometimes I get stuck in no I'm going to make it words now not thought processing and it was excellently challenging for someone who can't picture things in their head as well to like have to draw it in a way that makes sense okay um and it is what I used to for the beginnings of the world building for my Rumpelstiltskin series are you doing it book by book or was it for the whole series overall I played with it for the first book and I haven't picked it up for the second one yet, but that's just because that's not the stage I'm in yet. I'm going to, I'm going to do it to continue to build on Mm. now that we're in, we're in a completely different portion of my world in book two than we were in book one. So, so I'll be using it again. I'm just not there yet. How about you? This week I am going to recommend a Paranormal Cozy Mystery by Kristen Painter, and it is the Miss Frost Solves a Cold Case. The whole series is about this character, Jane Frost, who is Santa's niece and Jack Frost's daughter. So she has a a bit of abilities from both sides of her family because her mother is, I want to say, Santa Claus's sister. And so she grew up at the North Pole. And the premise of the series is that the North Pole has shops all over the world. And that's how they find out what toys are trending each year for Christmas. And she gets sent to be the manager of this location in Nocturne Falls. And Nocturne Falls is sort of a paranormal city in the South where all of these paranormals of all different flavors live. But it's like a tourist town. Nobody thinks the paranormals are real. They just think that this is some shtick that the locals have have concocted. There are like witches and different creatures and it's, it's a fascinating series. And it's really fun how full the world build is because you can tell that the author uh, Kristen Painter did her research on different species and she's got these different types of elves and there's just all of this that she's built into the series so when a new character is introduced they almost always have this fullness to them and you're like oh she did research on that particular creature. And so it's a lot of fun because she gets sent to be the manager of a store at this one location where there have been employees quitting in rapid succession. And it turns out that the employees go missing. So she ends up solving that case. And then she ends up over the course of the series, staying as the manager there Mm -hmm. and solving various mysteries that happen. It sounds fun. It's a lot of fun. It, it doesn't take itself too seriously which I enjoy. I love it. Well, that brings us to the end of our episode. And for our next episode, we're going to have an interview with a local author. Stevie is going to be interviewing her. It'll be a really hands-on world-building interview, and it should be a lot of fun. We will see you next episode. Happy reading, everybody. Bye.